Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 18th, 2022. We're talking education today. We're talking the American dream. We're talking about self-realization and university policy. Uh, yesterday, I had the former uh, Republican congressman from Florida, Rick Keller. I think he's a four-term congressman from Florida on the show. He has a new book out called Chase the Bears. It's a kind of memoir, little things to achieve big dreams. Rick is a self-made, or in, at least in his mind, a self-made boy from a a small town or a single parent family, poor family in Florida who made it big, who went to Vanderbilt Law School and became a congressman and an author. Um, and in our conversation, he really stressed in his achievement in Congress. He's very much bound up with the Bush family, for better or worse, especially Jeb Bush, worked closely in the second Bush administration. And he identified his political career in terms of Pell Grants and what he believed was um, his achievement in helping poor kids get into university and have the state support them. We didn't talk much about race. Um, I should, probably should have brought it up a little more, though I'm guessing he would have deflected the conversation. Um, we also talked a little bit about DeSantis, who, of course, is probably going to be running in 2024, the rising star within the Republican Party, who is building his brand around education, and schooling, uh, and his narrative, at least, of being against affirmative action and all sorts of other race-based policies in terms of education. I think for DeSantis and for Keller, education is as American as apple pie in terms of self-realization. But of course, as the Smithsonian Magazine notes, uh, apple pie isn't very American. So we have another kind of perspective on the show today. Natasha Wariku is a professor of education um, at Tufts University and a much published writer and thinker on education policy, race in schools, race in education. Uh, she had one book out this year called Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. And she has a new book out right now. It's called Is Affirmative Action Fair? The Myth of Equity in College Admissions, and Nasha is, uh, not Nasha, Natasha, is joining us from her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the heart of meritocratic America, Natasha. Yes, indeed. Thanks. Well, uh, we'll talk about that. Thanks just so much for having me on your show. So uh, can you go out on the streets when you're questioning affirmative action? Is it fair on, on the streets of Cambridge around Harvard University? What's your argument here about the fairness or otherwise of affirmative action, Natasha? So, well, what I do in this book is really try to take a close look at this, this question of affirmative action and say, well, what are the arguments for this policy? What are the arguments um, against it? What is the empirical evidence? What do we know from, you know, bans on affirmative action in some states around the country? What do we know from, you know, this idea that um, perhaps students may not be as ready? Um, and, and is it fair? And so on the one hand, I sort of say, well, all of the evidence suggests that this is a strong policy and it would be 
detrimental to lose it on the one hand. On the other hand, I take a broader look and say, well, let's zoom out a little bit and think about college admissions in general. And I try to reframe our way of thinking about college admissions and say, you know, we should stop thinking about college admissions as this reward for individual merit or individual worthiness that, you know, people who does, some people deserve to be admitted and some people don't. And the rather Rick, than- In other words, the Rick Tellers of the world, the, self, the self-made boys. That's right. Yeah. And so rather than thinking about this as, you know, who are the most deserving people, who are the most accomplished? This isn't like a, you know, college admission is not like a prize, like the MacArthur Prize, right? It's really about, you know, and it, or at least it should be about fulfilling institutional mission. What are our colleges trying to do and how do we align admissions with that those goals, right? If we want to contribute to society, how do we best admit students in order to do that? You know, when we think about jobs um, and employers hiring, we never think about this as well, we're going to hire the objectively best person, right? We think about fit. Who is going to help us realize our, you know, our company's goal? And in this role, this is what they're going to do. And I think colleges need to think the same way. And I think when we do that, it becomes very clear that affirmative action is a worthy and important policy to help fulfill institutional, these goals of, of, of elite universities. Natasha, I have to admit, I'm beginning to feel a bit sorry for affirmative action. It seems to be under assault both on the left and the right. On the one hand, you've got the DeSantis's of the world who are simply against the idea of any kind of color or race-based analysis of allowing people into college. But your critique is from the left. Your, 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 your critique of affirmative action is a progressive one. Is that fair? I mean, you're, you're, you're nowhere near DeSantis or the Republican Party on this. Um, let me just be clear. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm not critiquing affirmative action in this book. If anything, you know, I conclude that this is an important policy and that it would be it's an important one to defend. So if I have so I certainly am not a critic of affirmative action. I, I'm a strong believer in the policy and supporter of the policy. If any, the one kind of thing that I will say, which maybe perhaps is a critique from the left, is to say that, you know, we need to I, I wish that legally we could we could talk beyond in the United States, the only legal um, kind of um legally allowed justification for affirmative action has been this idea of diversity, that affirmative action creates a diverse learning environment in which everyone benefits. And I think um, we know that that's true. There's like decades of research that shows that a diverse learning environment does in fact improve all kinds of outcomes um, in terms of uh, learning, in terms of um, civic participation down the line, uh, in terms of racial attitudes on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, I think it makes us sometimes lose sight of our goals of um, equity, um, of the history of racial exclusion that might be a justification for affirmative action, of the ways that race kind of creates um, different educational opportunities in the United States that we might need to compensate for. So I think it's important to also think about racial equity. So absolutely, I'm a supporter of affirmative action. This is not a book that's critical of the policy. In fact, it's it's saying, well, it's more kind of a guide to say, well, let's look at these arguments and let's look at the data. And I think the data speaks for itself in terms of why this is um, a good policy. Um, well, but I have to admit, Natasha, when anyone says the data speaks for itself, it suggests <laughs> that it doesn't. Um, your, your, your pinned tweet on Twitter, um, uh, you talk about the, the myth of equity in college admissions, uh, which seems to be one of the, the core arguments in your yeah. questioning of whether affirmative action is fair. You use this word fair, the F word, 
Um, should education policy be built around fairness or is it so vague, so fuzzy, so ideological that maybe we need to come up with better words, maybe as, as you might be suggesting more utilitarian words? I, I think you're right to question this idea of fairness. And that's what I do in the book and say, you know, this is really kind of the wrong question, you know, and I, it's funny when, you know, this, this book was in kind of the early stages, I did talk to the editor. I was like, you know, should we really call it as affirmative action fair? Should we think about a different title? And he said, well, you know, you could use the title to sort of back into this, you know, questioning of that very question, right? Stop. We, we should, the question, yeah, so question but to be clear, um, the title of the book, uh, has a question mark after it. So it's, is affirmative yep. action fair? Meaning you're asking that question. You're not saying whether it is or it isn't. In the title. That's right. Yeah. And so the myth of racial e of equity is this, like, you know, the reason I say that is to say that, you know, it's, we assume that we can create an absolutely fair, you know, individualistic kind of assessment of young people and then kind of rank people from least deserving to most deserving. And I think that whole idea is problematic. And, you know, we can just, if, if there's any problem, we can just use affirmative action to fix it and then it will be fair again. And I think that whole idea is problematic that we should really kind of think much more broadly about college admissions. Yeah. And, and you seem to be entering the debate on America's meritocracy. We've done a number of shows, one with the Yale law professor yeah. Daniel Markovitz on American meritocracy in which he argues that the meritocracy has made everyone even the most successful yeah. miserable um Michael Sandel who has an important book he teaches at yeah. Harvard you probably bump into him in the street on Cambridge uh, the tyranny of merit what becomes of the common good I assume you're in Sandel's camp whereas people like Adrian Waldridge are actually defenders of the meritocracy he has a new book out defending it is that are you, are you in the Sandel camp in terms of the common good as, as a way of critiquing the notion of a competitive meritocracy, the meritocracy that you saw very up close up front and critically in Race at the Top, your analysis of a suburban uh, high school in, in the Northeast? Yeah, absolutely. I would be, I, I think I, I'm in, in agreement in a lot of ways with Sandel in that, you know, I think this whole idea of meritocracy about who's deserving and who's undeserving and and who is kind of quote unquote better than someone else and, you know, is problematic because when we believe in these systems that produce outcomes in which um, vulnerable groups are systematically underrepresented, it says that, you know, these people are better and they deserve all of these rewards. Um, and it kind of masks the unequal opportunities that people have to achieve those awards. And in a highly unequal society, it's really hard to, to kind of create a system that creates true equity to rise. Those were the defenders of meritocracy cutting you off. <laughs> Continue. Go on. We're back. No, we lost you again. There we go. Okay. Can you, oh, can you yep. hear me now? I can hear you now. Go on. I can't hear you now. What's going on? Hello? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm so sorry. Um, my microphone, uh, something's going on. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, we were talking about 
Oh, oh, Sandel, meritocracy. So I do think that we have to sort of move away from this idea of meritocracy and that being so caught up in who's deserving, who gets rewards and these competitive systems. And really to say that let's provide everyone for an opportunity. Everyone deserves, you know, a decent standard of living. Um, And let's focus on also in terms of higher education, the added value. You know, in the book, I say, you know, it's not obvious why the most resourced, which tend to be our most elite and hardest to get into colleges, select the strongest or say they select the strongest students, the highest performing students, because those are, I mean, maybe if you have so many resources, you should be selecting the weakest students, maybe who might have more potential, but have not been able to achieve because they're the ones who have the most room for growth. Right. Um, and yeah, you have, um, you had an interesting piece, which actually I'm sympathetic with the idea of using um, a lottery to admit students to elite colleges very much built, I think on, notions of antiquity and lottery to underline the luck involved in it that anyone can win the lottery um and the lottery is biased anyway at least in terms of american and and college education you still in favor of that the lottery i think some form of lottery is important because it changes the meaning of admission and it kind of takes this takes away this idea that it's a meritocracy you know and when we when when we have unequal opportunities to to win at that game um, I think it's dangerous to call it a meritocracy. And so that's why that's part of why I really um, think that this idea of lottery is important. Now, you know, I, I don't think a kind of full I don't necessarily advocate a full scale, like totally open lottery, but rather something where, you know, um, everyone has to sort of meet a certain bar. You could even have a holistic assessment of students and say, well, this student, I think, could be, you know, there's good reason to put them in the lottery. And then among those, because there's so many more qualified students who clearly could thrive in these um, elite colleges and there is room for it. So put all of those students um, into a lottery. And I think that would be a fair way of doing things. You wrote an interesting open letter to the class of 2023 a couple of years ago. Um, You say, dear Ivy League class of 2023, congratulations on embarking on this new phase of your life. Uh, As you begin, I I want to implore you to recognize the privileges that have had you led to this incredibly elite university. I know my kids would hate that, to be (laughs) forced to feel guilty. Are you making these kids feel guilty? I mean, some of them may be privileged, others are lucky, some are a mix of both. Do we really need to shove all this, all the inadequacies and structural problems of education onto the kids themselves to make them feel bad about themselves? No, I certainly do not want any child to feel guilty from whatever I've written. Or well, that's what your letter's saying is feel privileged. I mean, a lot of kids would say piss off. Well, I think it's less about feeling guilty and more about recognizing that um, what you've, you know, you've, you've accomplished a lot, but what has helped you accomplish those things and recognize that not all children have that. Because I think that's important because otherwise you are sort of um, assuming that, you know, all those other kids who didn't accomplish those things were somehow less worthy or did, you know, didn't care as much or they didn't have as enough, enough as much drive. That might be true for some of them, for, but for others put in the same life circumstances, they might have achieved perhaps even more or at least the same. And so I think that's just important to recognize what has helped us get to where we are. Um, and I actually think young, young people have a, a strong capacity for doing that. I teach a class actually on meritocracy right now, a seminar at Tufts. 
And I had as their first assignment, my students write a reflection on their own position. You know, these are students who have done quite well. Tufts is not an easy uh, university to get into in the United States. Um, and a lot of them talked about how, you know, they sort of starting to recognize like, oh, all these things helped me. And, um, you know, I didn't realize that when I was in school and now I do. And so I don't think it's that hard. And I don't think it's, it's, I don't think they're feeling guilty. There's a responsibility. And I, so I would not want them to feel guiltier, I, but I want them to feel a sense of responsibility that I've had these things and now I should do something good with it or, you know, pay it forward perhaps, um, but certainly not guilty. In your, on your Twitter page, uh, you describe yourself as an author and uh, as well as being a sociologist at Tufts University and a mom of three kids. Uh, you're passionate about racial and ethnic equity in education. What does that mean, racial and ethnic equity in education? I haven't re revisited that in a long time. Um, I mean, what that basically means is that I care about uh, equal opportunities to thrive, to achieve academically, to learn, um, to be challenged um, in school, and to you know go on to elite higher education and study at our top universities that we know can open doors for many young people. And so that's what I mean. But does that mean when you're in front of your class at Tufts, you when you look at one of your students, you, you think of them in racial or ethnic terms? Do you count up the numbers of whites or blacks in your class and feel better or worse about their diversity? You know, I, I, I as with any good teacher, I think I love to teach the, whoever is in front of me in the classroom. I'm certainly, you know, am I Am I ignoring race? I think anyone who says that they don't see race in the United States is either they have a lack of self-awareness or um, they're fooling you. Because I think, you know, in the United States, we learn at a very young age to see race. Um, so absolutely, I notice um, what students look like in my classroom. And I my brain probably is putting them in racial categories from, you know, day one. Do I use that to, you know, put them in a box? I hope I don't. I try not to. Um, and, um, but I think it's an inevitable that we notice these things. Um, and, but we have to work towards not letting those biases shape our interactions and what we do in the classroom. The conservative critique of affirmative action, and, and you're not on the conservative side, of course, is that, um, uh, one of the, the consequences is people of different races get um, promoted, sometimes justifiably, sometimes otherwise, which affects the way they're seen by faculty. How does affirmative action, do you think, the current affirmative action policy, how does it affect faculty members like you? Is, is, do the conservatives have a case for suggesting that it almost encourages faculty to think differently about the kids if, if, if affirmative action uh, is in existence in their school? You know, I think the problem with that thinking is that, you know, there's an assumption and perhaps some people do make the assumption that every single underrepresented minority student on campus benefited from affirmative action. And we know that's not true from the data. Um, but I also think that there's a different kind of framing. Um, and I think one that, um, uh, some people might think about, which is that you are part of an underrepresented group on campus, right? 
compared to your share of the population, there are not a lot of people from your racial group. You must be particularly special and particularly strong and particularly capable and, and accomplished to have made it here despite your group being underrepresented. So I, I also think that there is that framing that you know you are somehow exceptional. Um, and so you know I, I don't necessarily think that that is the, the response. Um, you know in my research in my book, The Diversity Bargain, I did talk to students about how they think about admissions and, and affirmative action. And I did find some evidence that some white students do think about this and they do, um, uh, sometimes uh, assume that that Black and Latino and Native American students have benefited from affirmative action um, and that that can be problematic. But I, I, I argue that that we need a reframe, right? That again, looking at these data suggests that we might come, you know, sort of flip that on its head. Um, what about the role of money here? It's ugly, but true. And we have to acknowledge it. You, you had an interesting piece in The Atlantic recently about uh, changing college admissions so that the kids of alumni uh, are not privileged one way or the other. But of course they're privileged because colleges like Tufts and Harvard want money from their alumni. Given the sort of semi-privatized nature of American education, is your argument about the public good and education compatible with uh, the, the privatized, selfish focus of universities like Tufts and Harvard? You know, it's interesting that um, I do think that it's compatible. And when you look at the mission statement of colleges in the United States, most of them, even the private colleges, have some kind of public, um, some kind of goal of public good, contributing to society, contributing to leadership. So I think these universities, these organizations do aspire to contribute to the public good. And perhaps even more so, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I worked in, in, in Britain for many years and, you know, the elite colleges there are obviously public as they are in most parts of the world. But those universities, I think, much more have a sense of, you know, we are a, um, a, 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 an educational institution that is much, it has a much more kind of elite identity, certainly Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and so I, I do think that just because of the, like the funding does not always align, funding source does not always align with how an organization, educational institution sees itself. So I absolutely think these colleges, that, that these colleges being private is not um, misaligned with this institutional mission. And I think that they do aspire to that. But ultimately, a Harvard or a Tufts has to focus on itself, on raising money. I mean, it, it use, we all use the language of the public good, but most people don't mean it. They don't even understand it. Um, and they all have their own missions, their own ideologies, their own biases. So do you really believe that uh, a, a fancy place like Harvard or fancy places like Harvard and Tufts can focus on the public good? I absolutely do. I mean, I, you know, obviously these, these universities are, um, you know, they need to protect the bottom line. They have to balance their budgets. Um, I, I personally don't think that they need to be, you know, including legacy admissions in order to be able to do yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't think anyone would defend that, even the legacy yeah. people. I mean, yeah. they, it's the oh, dirty you'd be surprised. Yeah, but, the um, laundry that no one wants to acknowledge. Yes. So, you know, I, I, um, 
I, you know, of course they have to balance their books just like every other public institution, but I do think that they are compatible with the public good. I think sometimes they lose sight of that. Um, and so I don't think they're perfect. Um, and I think they have a long way to go, but I do think that they are trying, um, you know, and they, they, you know, if we, if we look at the leadership and what they're trying to do, I think they are trying to do that. And I think if we can align admissions much more to those public purposes and those goals, I think if we, you know, that will be a win for these universities and for our society in general. Uh, Natasha, we, we've had a number of shows about the sort of the architecture of American aristocratic capitalism, to use a term. Matthew Stewart was on the show recently as a new book out on the 9.9% who's running the world. It's not a, a racial or cultural argument. It simply acknowledges that 10% of the people control our economy, our culture, our media, our politics. Um, the architecture of American colleges, these Ivy Leagues, these top places like Tufts and, and Harvard that, that, that you know so well, they support that 10%. It's not the 1%, it's the 10%. And whether they're white or black or brown or Asian, it doesn't really make any difference, does it? It's nonetheless the reality of our early 21st century global, perhaps neoliberal capitalist order. So how are you going to change that? Well, again, I do, maybe I, um, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I do think that these universities can change that. Part of the, I mean, in multiple dimensions, I think admissions is just one piece of these universities, but one thing that they can do is to admit a much broader student body, you know, have more international students, international students, not just elites, um, who are from, you know, give more financial aid to international students. I think having student, a much more diverse student body, not just in terms of race, but also in terms of class, you know, these um, elite universities are even, you know, middle class students are actually even underrepresented on a lot of very selective college campuses. And so I think part of it is expanding who belongs to these institutions and who is becoming part of this leadership. Um, you know, certainly I think there are other things that the universities can do much, integrate themselves much more to their, into their local communities. Um, thinking about yeah, the Yeah, I mean, but, you know, we, they all talk that, but that doesn't happen. You know, we, we've had uh, Steve Jones on the show recently talking about the whole point of universities in, in, in our age of radical inequality. We also had, I'm not sure, I know he follows you yeah. on Twitter, Devarian Baldwin. He has yeah. a really interesting book out yes. on In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, suggesting that universities plunder the town. You're talking to me from Cambridge, a classic way in which Harvard University has essentially colonized the, the, that part of the Boston area. Isn't the problem that the, with the universities themselves, rather than obsessing over them and admission policy, we should actually be figuring out ways to undermine their, their wealth and power. We also had, and uh, you're probably familiar with his uh, work, um, uh, uh, Matthew, uh, Charlie Eaton on the show. He's another, I think he's a UMass or uh, a public education uh, expert. Uh, he talks about how ivory tower bankers are plundering our university. Um, shouldn't that be the focus rather than worrying on affirmative action? You know, I think all of these are really important issues. And I tend to, when I think about social change, I think about it happening in a lot of different domains. You know, I think 
I'm talking about elite education when, uh, you know, majority of students in, in the United States going to college are going to open access colleges. So, and I, so I certainly don't think that there's one domain that we need to prioritize over others. So absolutely, I think I, um, you know, I'm familiar with Devarian Baldwin's uh, work and I think he has an incredibly important point. I agree. Um, we should be thinking about that. I mean, a $50 billion endowment and you don't pay tax is kind of outrageous, right? And so, um, you know, and what can we do to leverage these resources to, you know, uh, support public uh, higher education at a time when, you know, across the country, there is declining support for public universities. Um, how, you know, how can we when that, you know, we know that those endowments are built, uh, were built in part during times when, um, when, you know, people of color, working class people were just basically excluded from these universities. And so absolutely, you know, and, you know, thinking about our historically black colleges, universities that are so have so, so much fewer resources than these private, predominantly white institutions. So absolutely, I think we need to figure out ways for these universities to play a much more um, significant role in uh, equity, social change, social justice than they do now. Um, and admissions is just one small part of it. Um, and I wouldn't would never say that it's the only thing. It's certainly not the only thing. And I don't want to dump everything on you, Natasha. You've been very good natured about this. Obviously, you're not responsible for the the dysfunctionality of the American education system. But we, we should also say something on schools. Um, we've done, again, a number of shows on American schools, pre uh, K through 12. We did one with Leslie Fenwick, an education expert on the legacy of Jim Crow, um, one with Daniel Moak on 50 years of failed federal education reforms in high school, another one with Derek Black on basically the decimation of public education. I mean, these kids who show up at Tufts or Harvard, whether they get in through the lottery or otherwise, they have to go through schools. And the real problem are, is that the American school system is in crisis. Is that fair? that I would call the American school system in crisis, but I will say that we have unequal educational opportunities. You know, as I think about these problems more and more, I, I have started to move away from this idea that we can solve these problems in the field of education. I think housing plays a really important role. You know, our neighborhoods are incredibly segregated by race and by class and actually increasingly by political views as well. And so, you know, you have kids, it's, it's very hard to dismantle uh, these unequal educational opportunities when we have local school, school funding and we have people going to school with people of the same social class. And so, and those resources then are extremely unequally distributed in terms of parents' knowledge based on having gone to higher education, their resources to donate to the school, their cultural knowledge about like how to get ahead, helping their kids and their kids' friends. So all of these things, you know, I think are unequally distributed in part because of the way that housing is so segregated by class and race in the United States. Um, and that is a very hard but important problem to kind of tackle, I think. It is, but on the other hand, aren't you then as an educationalist really throwing up your hands and saying, I can't fix any of this. We've got to deal with housing. We've got to deal with the structure of capitalism. We've got to deal with... <laughs> All these bigger issues, which you know as well as I do, are irresolvable, particularly in the America of the 2020s. So 
at a certain point, you've got to address education and not blame other sectors or introduce other sectors where it's even more problematic. Of course. I mean, I would never say, again, you know, I, I think very holistically about social problems, right? We're not um, just going to focus on housing. We are still going to focus on education. Um, we're still going to focus on educational opportunity. Um, but I do think that we need to develop much more stronger public will um, to uh, support education. You know, I'll just give you an example. In Massachusetts right now on the ballot in November, there's a there's a, um, a referendum, a, quite, a ballot question about um, a millionaire's tax, where there's going to be a 4% tax of incomes beyond $1 million in the year. So you'll tax 4% just over that. And all of those that that money is then going to go to uh, public education and to public transportation. Um, and if you know anything about public transportation in, in the Boston area, we also, you know, that has also become problematic. And so I do think policies like this where we say, OK, you are benefiting and you are doing quite well. Let's invest some of that into public education. And so I do think creative strategies like this can go a long way to um developing the resources that we need to help kid, our most vulnerable kids in the state. Fine, Natasha. Uh, we've talked about a lot of different areas and affirmative action, lotteries and so on when it comes to colleges and high schools. I'm giving you one wish here at the end of our interview, one wish about one thing you could do to make American education fairer, to use your word, or more equitable, better. Uh, what would you do that Change it overnight with a click of the fingers. You can do anything you want. Ooh, um, what would I do if I could do one thing? And that's any at any age. You know, I any think age, any school, any sector, anything you want. I'm giving you the power, enormous power, Natasha. Use it wisely. I would shift funding of public education to the state level. Interesting. Sort of that's a good, that, um, distributes resources. Yeah, I mean, that's a fa I mean, maybe that should be the subject of your next book. That's fascinating. I mean, it's great in Massachusetts, probably okay in California, though. Then it's sort of it follows abortion in an odd way. And I'm not sure how many people are going to want to live in Florida or North Carolina. But that's another subject, another perhaps for Natasha, and that you can talk about that in your next book. You've got two books out this year. You're very productive. One is just out, is Affirmative Action Fair, also another interesting book you got out this yeah, Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools, all kind of dealing with the same subject of equity and fairness in higher education. So congratulations on those books. Natasha, what else would you suggest people read these days, maybe on education, maybe otherwise? What do you enjoy reading? Oh, there's so many. I think Dever you mentioned Devarian Baldwin's book. Um, yeah, it's a good one. He's, a, he's yeah. a really good. I need to get him back on the show. He's a really smart guy. Yes. I think that's really important. I also think, you know, as we're talking about higher education, Adam Harris's book, The State Must Provide, which really talks about the, the um, historically black colleges and universities and their history in comparison to their their colleges that are that were historically their kind of historically white counterparts in the South. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a really important story about the um, higher education funding in the United States and the ongoing impact of that um, racial segregation today. Um, what else in higher education? There's there's so many great. Um, um, maybe I should leave it at that. 